When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything. So you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. Hello, I'm Alan Davis. You're listening to the Tuesday Club. This is the Arsenal Podcast, and this is an unusual edition of the Arsenal Podcast because for the first time uh, on the Tuesday Club, we have a guest. Uh, Amy Lawrence is here. Amy Lawrence is here. And we have convened especially to uh, converse with Amy. I have Damien Harris, midfield general, is present. Thank you. Well, you, <laughs> and, you clapped. Uh, yep, that is. That's and Tyapapula is here as well. Still Hi, T. Yeah, <laughs> Soho Radio Hat. <laughs> Wednesday, 8 till 10. <laughs> <laughs> Amy Lawrence is the. She's just come from the AGM. Now, you're listening to this. I'm not sure when this is. This is middle of the week. We've played Hull. We don't know the result. We've been recording this before the whole game, before the Anderlecht game. Um, so we're not really talking about game. If you're, if you're feeling anxious and stressed and you want to hear people stand off about recent Arsenal fixtures, this isn't it. What you're going to hear in this podcast is people talking about Arsenal 2003-2004. That's oh, that is what we're going to talk about. Oh. We're going to talk about um, <laughs> we're going to talk about Lehman Lauer and Cole Toure Campbell Jungberg. Yeah. Those were the days, my friend. We're going to talk about Ray Parler. We're going to talk about Keown trying to get on in the last game. We're going to talk about Parler winding him up. We're going to talk about Wiltor. We're going to talk about Carnu. We're going to talk about all the great players and the great stadium that they played in. And that's all we're going to talk about, unless we slip into, why doesn't he play Ozil at number 10? Or what did they say at the AGM? Or things like that, which might happen. Yeah. But we're, we're doing that because Amy Lawrence has written a book about the Invincibles and the 10-year anniversary, which is out on the, what day's it out? Oh, October the 23rd. Yeah, so it might already be out. I don't know. Depends when this goes out. Depends when you're listening to this. I've read it. It's excellent. If you like uh, the Invincibles and the Arsenal, it's absolutely unmissable. If you quite like things about successful football teams and and an interview with Arsene Wenger and how the hell did they manage it, it's really it's worth a read. So, Amy, hello. Hi. And uh, and maybe we'll start with saying why. What is? Do you, are they the best team? I mean, is that why you wanted to write this book? Because you just loved them, or did you think ten year anniversary coming up could cash in? <laughs> so <laughs> cynical. Sorry for cynicism. It was one of those really weird moments where somebody got in touch with me and said. I've got an idea and I wondered if you might be interested in writing this book. And when I met up with the publisher and he proposed this idea, my instinct immediately was, why the hell did I not think of that? How did it yeah. take somebody else to put the idea in my brain that a book about the Invincibles would be a good idea and, and that I'd like you, to do it? Choosing you, because you are, let's establish your credentials, 
Arsenal mental. <laughs> there are many. Uh, Amy, Can't really uh, Amy if you don't read the, the Guardian, the Observer, um, you won't know that Amy uh, writes expertly and has been writing expertly about Premier League and international football for how many years? Twenty. Mm, a long um, time, uh, and it's a. Uh, Devotees of Amy Lawrence include Damien Harris here, for example. Big fan we of your like, work. We like any uh, football writer who shows an Arsenal bias unashamedly. <laughs> <laughs> we dislike football writers who have a bias and you have to try and work it out. They're the ones we, mm. we hate the most. And uh, you uh, attended Highbury from what age? Six. It's age of six. First wow. match was? Uh, Arsenal, Nottingham Forest, 3-0, late 70s. Nice, sweet. Yeah. I don't think I went to that. <laughs> I remember Forrest. Do you remember Forrest 2-1 at home when they were the champions? Did you mm-hmm. go to that? Frank Stapleton got the winner. I sat. I stood on the West Lower. Oh, it was epic. I was with my brother, right? Because I wasn't allowed to go on my own yet because I wasn't yet 13, which my father thought was the cut-off for going to games on your own. And my brother was a Tottenham fan. And John Robinson scored for Forrest. And, he, and my brother did a little clenched fist, yes, surreptitiously <laughs> next to me. And I had to suffer that until we beat them 2-1 in front of 52,000 Heaving at Highbury. Maybe we'll start there. Maybe we'll start with Highbury and the memory of that ground and how important that was as part of that season. Do you think they could have done what they did at the Emirates? I think what they did could only have happened, not just at Highbury, but at that time at Highbury. I think it was the absolute optimum moment. It was where all the benefits of Arsene Wenger turning up and being this kind of miracle worker... Um, there's a famous story about David Dean taking, um, uh, going to a Champions League final, I think, in Wenger's first year or so, and being a bit ahead of him when they were checking into the hotel. And when you have to fill in the forms, him writing name, Arsene Wenger, uh, profession, um, miracle worker, which he actually <laughs> did. <laughs> um, anyway, that's a digression. But... Like, you know, like because that. of because of where Arsenal are now, and because of this, sort of set, you can quite neatly divide Arsene Wenger's reign at Arsenal into two periods: um, Highbury and Emirates. <laughs> pretty much, uh, that we sometimes forget about that first period because everybody's moaning a lot about the second period, or has done in quite a, a lot of the last decade. Um, but to remind yourself of quite the extent of the change that he brought. It is astounding to think how Arsenal was almost the day before he arrived and then in that first 10-year period afterwards. Um, And the fact that he was able to have... He was so ahead of the game, not just in in terms of the way that players looked after themselves. And We talk a lot nowadays, people are very concerned about the injury situation and how players are getting injured all the time. And that Invincibles team, there were very few... Injuries. It's interesting looking back how mm. these they were physically more powerful, though, they, weren't they? They were. More I mean, powerful. everyone's a six footer. Even Burkamp's six one. Henri mm. was a monster. He'd batter the current team. And when he came back and played for us, when he came out on that, he was massively bigger than everybody else on the mm. pitch. He wasn't. He didn't look that big when he played. But that was a powerful side. It was a powerful side. But he was recruiting these players. Remember the the controversy about creatine when Wenger first oh, yeah, rocked yeah, up. Yeah. You know, and this. This supplement that nobody knew about was left out in bowls every day at training. And if you wanted, when you came to training in the morning, you could take one or you didn't have to. It was all... And Dennis didn't, did Dennis it? didn't. Dennis declined. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the players did and said that they felt better. There was all sorts of sort of chiropractor uh, type of stuff that, you know, specialists that came in. The, 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 the food, we all know about how extensively that changed. In fact, Ian Wright um, 
recently said that he he actually used to feel ill. He barely ate when Arsene Wenger turned up because <laughs> the food was so plain and he was brought up on a, a much more kind Nando's. of... Nando's. <laughs> <laughs> Spicy and <laughs> No Nando's anymore. But apparently he did, did go to Gary Lewin on occasions and say, I can't, I'm in the game and I can't even see out of one of my eyes, like my peripheral vision is gone because he was so hungry. Because <laughs> he, he still wouldn't eat the food. food. Yeah, he, 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 he said he oh, actually he was a child. To... <laughs> He's got a child's palate. <laughs> Well, anyway, he so there was a lot of things that were changing, and plus the you know apart from that side of things, the physiological side, training side, and so on, just being able to buy players that Arsenal would never have bought. Remember that George Graham just before he left bought Glenn Helder, John Hartson, this kind of player, and Arsene Wenger rocked I up like and bought. Shout out for Chris Kiwomia. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But came obviously you're comparing that to but arriving he didn't and buying have anything an, an, like an Anelka knowledge, and a Vieira. He didn't have the knowledge. He didn't know Anelka was a Vieira. I mean, there's Vieira. I mean, we talk about Arsenal changing the club. Vieira changed the club too, didn't he? And there's a nice stuff in your book about Vieira's debut against Sheffield Wednesday and how everybody in the ground knew. Oh. We all knew we were there. We knew something was going on. This was a new. T- he did not care how many people were around him. He would take the ball to his feet turn around and go with it and look for Dennis Bergkamp. The most completed pass in the Premier League 97-98, Vieira to Bergkamp. I'd, and that did transform the team. And that, Arsenal, and from then on, it was all about Arsenal signing players. You're thinking, who should we buy? Who should we buy? Who should we buy? Don't worry, you'll get someone you haven't heard of. And that was what he used to do. And so they're between them. Then he signed an Elka. Then, but then we lost everybody, didn't we? So you had to rebuild the team. All that stuff about how he was lucky, he had the English back four. He rebuilt the team in 2002 for the double Got Sol Campbell in from Spurs, hilarious. Brought Ashley Cole through, changed the team, brought in Lara and changed people's, people around. And then in 2003, we were the best team in the country by a street. By a street. We went on a long unbeaten run that was ended by Wayne Rooney at Goodison, but we were still, we still should have won the league comfortably that year, but we blew it. At Bolton. Bolton, in off Keon's head. Keon's head. We are in Paris for that, dude. Leave that? it. Anyway, they blew it. <laughs> and what I remember is immediately after they'd blown that league in 03. They blew it. They should have won the double that year. Back-to-back doubles. They would have had three titles in a row. They really would have cemented themselves as the greatest team in the history of English football. And they blew it. And, of course, if you blew anything in those days, Ferguson would out-elf you because he was always behind you. And they absolutely blew it. And they knew they'd blown it. And I remember we played Southampton at Highbury. And we won 6-1. Jermaine Pennant got a hat-trick. Robert Pires got a hat-trick. But the man who totally destroyed Southampton was Thierry Henry. And at one point, he seemed so angry about it. And at one point, he ran... Carried the ball about 20 yards, surrounded by three Southampton players. About halfway through, stopped, almost put his foot on it, almost looked at them. <laughs> With disdain. And then ran away from them all. <laughs> I mean, he was livid about it. And that, what comes through in your book, which maybe we didn't quite believe in 03, was how intensely they wanted to win, how much it kept, they cared about winning. And what the feeling was a little bit at Bolton... I remember the celebration of a goal and Will Tall and Pires were doing some flappy-handed, weird, dancey celebration and I was thinking, just get back to halfway and do not cock this up. We need these points. And you felt like there was a bit of a complacency slipping in to a team that were clearly the best in the country and they blew it. But in 03-04, they wanted it bad. Mm. Jens Lehmann came in. So let's go through the team. He came in, we'd seen him play at Highbury because he played for Dortmund and he looked pretty solid. And he got in really though, didn't he? Because he was dirt cheap. Yeah, it was a, a million quid, or one and a half million pounds. And the only deal that was done that summer, that's the other thing, just quickly going back to your point about it could have only happened at Highbury, it could have only happened then. So we've got all the benefits of 
what Wenger had brought in to, to make the club better. But 03, that summer when Lehman come, the only signing mm. was when Abramovich arrived and threw £100 million at Chelsea mm. in one summer. So... It, it had to do it, it, it that was, year. Had to do it, it that year. It was pretty much the last chance. And the following summer, Mourinho came. Yeah, exactly. Had to do it that year. So they did. They got well. They got Lehman, and then meanwhile, the other thing that happened: Jens Lehman went in goal, intense, wanted to win every game, wanted to win every training session. Army. The other thing that happened was Colo Toure centre back. Then when he went to centre back, I assumed that maybe he's always been a centre-back and he's just been waiting for the moment. But that isn't really the case, is it? You talk to Kolo Turi. You talk to basically everyone. Ashley Cole didn't want to speak to you or about Arsenal or something. But that aside, everybody else wanted to talk and talk about that team. So was Kolo really new to centre-back at that summer? Very much so. I think he played virtually everywhere except goalkeeper in, in his Arsenal and he, career. And he was good everywhere. <laughs> well, the lovely we- thing about Kolo was that, you know, he he arrived from the Ivory Coast and was so desperate to play. And in his first training session on trial, went and first of all cluttered, I think, Bergkamp, then cluttered Henri, was going around cluttering all the players. And then I think uh, the ball went out and Arsene Wenger was just getting the ball back to uh, put it back in, into play. And Colo went and absolutely took out Arsene. Um, <laughs> Arsenal had to have treatment. He had an ice pack on and, and Ray Parler remembers going in and, and seeing Arsenal like this and, and yeah, saying, you're right, boss. And uh, Arsenal saying, well... Yeah. And, and Colour was very upset because he thought he'd ruined his chances by injuring Arsene Wenger during his trial. And, uh, and um, Arsene said to, to Ray Parler, you know, Ray said, oh, "This boy, he's, he's quite upset out there, boss." And he said, "I, he said, I, I know, I like him. I sign him tomorrow." <laughs> so, uh, was that the season um, when he scored the equaliser against Chelsea, um, or was that the season before? I think that was that the season that had been previously. But but go, going back to Colo, what I thought was a really interesting insight into Arsene and how he works. The idea of putting Colo Torre at centre back. He he was a classic utility player. He could play midfield. He could play right back. He could play left back. He could play a winger. I think once or twice he even played virtually up front, um, running around like a like a madman. <laughs> and at the, I remember in o three o four talking to to Arsene about Colo and him calling him a crazy dog. And that's his kind of description of he was like this wild yeah, we dog just running around like mad. Griff used to call him the bull. I love him. He's like a bull. <laughs> But we, it was pre-season, and I think uh, Keown and, and Adams had just retired. No, sorry, no, Ke- sorry, was just scr- T.A. It was, it, yes, Tony Adams had T. just T. retired. Had so, yeah. kind of dealing with that situation was something that was on the cards. And, and Martin Keown was coming up for thirty-six, thirty-seven years old. So, they needed to sort out the centre-back position. And and there was a pre-season match against Besiktas, and Arsene Wenger went up to the opposition manager and said, um, "Could you watch?" some of my players and I'll watch some of yours is there a part of your team I would you would like to know how it feels to play against and we could do the same for each other he said yes so he said please can you watch my centre backs are your your forwards any good he said yes my forwards are good he said great so they played this game and Wenger basically concentrated on the opposition centre forwards and um, the other manager concentrated on Sol Campbell and Colo Torre playing together as a pair for the first time and after the game well what did you think and the uh, the opposition manager said uh, they were very very powerful together. I felt great physical st- strength with these two players. 
And Wenger said, right, that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted these sort of two turbo trains, this great power to be and together. And speed as well. Exactly. So it was almost born of a kind of experiment, really. And if it hadn't have worked, I'm not quite sure what the central defensive partnership might have been. No, I'm quite blessed as well, too, because Ashley Cole appeared. And I know, I mean, I spoke to Arsene Wenger at a charity event for a couple of minutes. Always a pleasure. And he said, Jack Wilshire is a miracle. And what he meant by that is we're only allowed to take people from within an hour and a half of the training ground. So to find a world-class midfield player who has to be born basically within about 40 or 50 miles of your ground is a miracle. That's the way recruiting works in the UK. So to get someone come through, let's say our academies, and you know, you need, you have, you've got a bit of luck on your hands if you're like West Ham in the 90s when you get six great ones, or Southampton at the moment when six come through at once. Ashley Cole appeared and was obviously going to be a great left-back. So that position's nailed down. Right-back, meanwhile, we didn't have one. And uh, he signed Lauren, who thought of himself as a centre midfielder for Cameroon. Signed him from Mallorca, wasn't it? What did Lauren think about playing right-back when you spoke to him about it? He was quite miffed. Uh, <laughs> I, I think when... By I way, think we he, call him Ralph. We always call him Ralph because it's very hard to think of him as, as anything but Ralph. But. I think he call, he probably knows... He he remembers, in fact, Arsene, they both remember the, the conversations as being really difficult and challenging because Arsene said to him, I want you to play right back. And he said, but I'm not a right back. I'm right midfield or I can play in a midfield three. I can play central. Um, and basically there was a lot, there took a lot of convincing um, for him to, to go for it. He didn't want to do that. Uh, and even Freddie Jungberg was another player who was quite reluctant to change position. I mean, this is something Wenger did a lot in that era, very, very successfully. I think you look back and you think of um, buying Emmanuel Petit, who had played left-back his entire life, yeah, and or, bringing him to Arsenal and say, OK... left of a three in defence yeah. or a defender, really. Amy, where did, where did uh, Freddie think he should play? Uh, Freddie had always played as a sort of playmaker, kind of number 10-ish, uh, sort of advanced midfield somewhere between the midfield and the strikers in the middle and Arsenal, which he subsequently did for Arsenal in the 06 Champions League and, run, he, and, and, and he was brilliant and I think he feels that was where he was best in his Arsenal time when he, he enjoyed himself the most in many ways mm. which is interesting and he played but he, he, and, he and Ralph had a pretty good combination on the right hand side but everything about that team was is, the memory of it is what happened on the left hand side really Ashley yeah. Cole, when we had the ball, would go and play midfield. And, and Pires would go wherever the ball was. I don't think I've ever seen a player like Pires, who just is never more than about 20 yards from the ball. He's never unavailable for a part. He'd been Footballer of the Year two years previously. Maybe he peaked then. But he was still pretty good in the 03-04 season. Five million quid, wasn't it, from Marseille for Pires? How do you think he compares with the sign? <laughs> don't even. Don't do this don't to yourself. Even. Come on. Don't even. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I th- he was quite impressive, wasn't it? That seemed to be the way it worked, as if it was a 4-4-2, but when you had the ball, it was three at the back almost. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, you look at, yeah, let's not talk about the current team, but, you know, there is that sense of... Oh, what was wonderful about that team was they all felt so absolutely comfortable with where they were playing. They totally trusted each other as teammates. Um, they had a real collective sense of motivation. They were, you know, massive winning mentalities as individuals, and they all threw that into the melting pot. A guy like Jens Lehmann, as you say, turning up at the beginning of the season, replacing David Seaman after 13 years, the same guy, everybody knew him 
so well. It was a difficult thing, in a way, to come in for him. Mm. And I don't think it was a coincidence that Wenger chose Lehman. I mean, yes, it was cheap, so maybe, maybe that explains <laughs> a lot. But, but on the other hand, he chose a guy that Patrick Vieira turned around and said, OK, before Lehman came, our winning mentality was here. And when Lehman came, it went up there. And you think, how can that be? I mean, this was a team who just won two doubles in four years and full of players who had won World Cups and massively successful. Did they really need to go any further? But There's also mm. that feeling, there was that feeling that we touched on earlier, that they touched great heights in the O2 team and they blew the O3 uh, league and was there gonna, did you need a revamp? If you don't renew, you're standing still. Do we need do we need to chop this up? There was talk about Burkamp being sold to Fulham at one point. There was we'll <laughs> talk about him. Once you get to thirty, you only get a year. You know, I mean, there's, maybe we'll touch later on how the team broke up. But there was a feeling that we might need people. And he, as you say, he, did, he put Toure at centre back. He put Lehman in goal because Seaman had retired, and then he went with what he had. Gilberto Silva had come the year before after the World Cup. That was a good fee as well. Well, how much did he pay for him? About four million quid or something, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and a banjo. A <laughs> free banjo. <laughs> yeah. So you talk to, did you go to Brazil to talk to Gilberto? Sadly, no, that would have been no. nice. But, uh, but we, we, Where we, was he then when you spoke to I, him? He was in Brazil. We did a Skype interview. A Skype? Which is a new, for, new one for me. Skype. Damn yeah. Skype. Is he, as nice, is he as nice as he looks? He's you have absolutely... to be careful, Amy, when you talk about uh, Gilberto, because uh, Alan... Alan feels very, very strongly, so uh, you can only... <laughs> bit like only, my love for Dennis. Link. He's the missing link still. To me, without Gilberto, there is no possibility of a year and a half unbeaten. I mean, it's absolutely impossible to think about it. There is no, talk about it, it mops up every spillage on your... You've got a spotless kitchen floor, is what I'm saying, <laughs> is the metaphor. You will never go, what's that? Between my, no, Gilberto's cleaned it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was... I, I agree with you on Gilberto, I think massively underrated, but also Edu... And one of the things that I thought was very indicative of the way this team worked um, was that what came across from talking to them is how much they really loved each other as as mates as well. I mean, there was a real proper connection that went on. A lot of these guys had quite different backgrounds and you think, why would Ray Parler, you know, get on with Gilberto or why would Freddie Jungberg get on with um, Thierry Henry? You know, there were quite, you know some quite different personalities and backgrounds but Arsenal in that season desperately needed obviously Gilberto he came in and the relationship he built with Vieira was fundamental but he effectively took that position in a way from Edu who perhaps could have done it himself so you you know you've got a really great player in Edu who I think could have been a fantastic player mm. for a longer time he was ended up being very unlucky with injuries and leaving and so on um, but he helped, even though Gilberto took his place, he helped him settle in. He helped him massively. He? There was no sense of, you know, they were kind of competing for the same position to play alongside Vieira. And they were like. Edu's absolute... story is really sad, though, isn't it? Because Edu had a terrible situation, didn't he, when he arrived at Arsenal? Can you talk, talk to us a bit about that, what he told you about his family? Extraordinary. And I mean, first of all, he had a difficult start because I think when he arrived at Heathrow, he'd been given a bum passport by his agent. He actually. <laughs> Qualified for a perfectly legitimate European passport, but for some reason ended up with a Silvino <laughs> cast off or something. Oh. And, uh, wow. and he got sent, I think he got sent back at the first attempt coming into the country because the paperwork was uh, not nice. quite right. So there was a kind of delay, and then he went home and, 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 and returned. And, and 
I think there have been some terrible tragedies in, in the family and um, his sister died when he'd only just come to England and then, then he had a terrible injury. So he was injured, he was dealing with family tragedy, he was far from home, he didn't really speak English um, and it was clearly a, a massive personal test of mm. of him and he just says that the way that Arsene Wenger dealt with that situation was unbelievable for him that he expected it would have been probable that a manager might turn around and say look go back to Brazil for a bit or you know go on, on loan back to Sao Paulo or whatever it is uh, sort yourself out and all that Arsene Wenger did every single day was say Edu how are you how's your mum how's your dad you know how are your family how's everything he didn't care about the professional side he said you take as long as you want to get yourself right i don't care about your injury i don't care about you just get settled if there's anything you need every day how's your mum how's your dad how are you mm. and he just got this feeling that arson only cared about the pastoral side rather than the football side which in a cutthroat environment like football is quite reassuring to hear mm. um and he, and he waited basically for Edu to feel right and, and he off. was a massively important well, he played part of in, that team he played in the uh, Old Trafford game in 0-2 didn't he? and that oh, was that that game and they went for us I mean it was violent they had four, United had four players booked before half time at Old Trafford it's almost impossible for a United <laughs> player to get booked at Old Trafford mm. four before half time but Parler and Vieira and Edu just got up and went at them again I mean they were, we were bigger than them better than them stronger than them Ferguson began at that point to change the way he played against Arsenal for a few years because he knew he couldn't compete as a football team. After after Edu and Gilberto and Vieira, Pires, Jungberg, you get to the front. Uh, who's your favourite player? <laughs> is it Bergkamp or is it Henri? Oh. <laughs> Sophie's <laughs> choice. Amy's choice. I might just go now. I think that's enough. Well, it's like saying, you know, which is your favourite child? I'm sorry, I'm not answering. <laughs> yeah, go on. Uh, <laughs> who, who are you saving yeah, from exactly. the chamber? <laughs> fair, fair to say that Henri was nailed on, you know, he's the Rolls Royce. But Bergkamp was perhaps not expected, maybe by Arsene Wenger, to still be running the team in 2004. I mean, he was on his way out the door at one point, wasn't he? I, I watched the... Um the DVD of the Invincibles year and one of the interviews the main interview with Dennis and he goes I know when my I know my body I know when I'm having a good season and you could see there was an element of defensiveness going look I can still contribute I might not be so fast but yeah. he was and, and he every did. year it was one more year one more year yeah. and that was all he got yeah it's painsy I think it now <laughs> yeah but they were they didn't play all the time, did they? They mixed it up. Will Tall played quite a lot. Carnu played a lot, especially in the Champions League. Carnu played every game. Mm. But Henri was pretty much a fixture. Well, I was going to say, I think we've still, I think we've still got a bit of it now, like kind of in a misguided sense. But you sort of didn't mind who who was playing that day, you know? If it was if Parlo was in the middle, because you know, because Vieira missed a few games that season, didn't he? Because he was, and, 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 it, and it never mattered who was playing in the team because. Especially at Highbury, because we were always so powerful all the time. Also, in the San Siro in that season, we talked a little bit about the Champions League. We won five-one, and the midfield pair was Edu and Parla. You know, so mm. was it? it was a four-four-two, wasn't it? Oh, there was Seagal. Me for being boring, but I do think that's the best way yeah, to play. Yeah, it's... <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. 
you'll, you'll be especially pl- you'll for be, Arsenal. You'll be pleased, Alan, to, to know that Arsenal was actually asked specifically about playing four four two at one of the um, one of the questions at the AGM. The AGM. Oh, really? One of the rare questions. He was actually asked a tactical question about you know why don't you play four four two? And he said uh, that he would. He would try it. Oh, okay. But go on then. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, they all knew the job. They all knew. It was nice to think if someone was out, you always have that feeling when you've got a great team. Okay, no, we had a 91. That was a fine team. The best in the league. They could, they should have gone unbeaten. They lost the game at Chelsea when both centre-backs were injured and they lost 2-1. That was only they lost that because of injury. And they would have gone the whole season unbeaten if it wasn't for that bit of bad luck. Mm. But you look around the 11 and every single one that was solid and every backup was solid. But we even had Sigan as well, isn't that? But yeah, the others were just kind of covering for him. Yeah. <laughs> Can I just ask you as well? Because I've got, uh, I've got, I've always had a soft spot for for Shirley for Old Ray Parlour. So, uh, what was he like to interview, and, and and what did the others say about him and his role in the his role in that team? Uh, you know, that it's very interesting because you get a guy like Robert Pires, kind of Mister Sophisticated, a great guy who turns around and says, you know, it was so vital. The thing he felt was most important was still having some, you know, the English core in the Premier League and you know wonderful that was to bring in all these fantastic flamboyant technical players from overseas it w- it meant a lot within the day-to-day life of the club and of the team that Ray Parler was in that dressing room Martin Keown who was who didn't play that many games mm-hmm. um but was really important behind the scenes in that season I think he kind of undertook a sort of role where he was on his way he knew he wasn't going to play that much but he wanted to be there to be a kind of a, a, a helper and a morale booster in every sort of way and, and he knows that he used to drive the players mad quite a lot and I think they used to get annoyed occasionally when it was like Martin were going on about what studs they were going to wear or you know some kind of detail where they're like yeah yeah alright okay you know let's we know what we're doing by now thanks all the same he was always in someone's ear but he he was so passionate about making sure that every detail could be as best as it could be yeah. and he saw it as, as his job we talked before about Colo Torre coming in he actually saw it as part of his role that season to nurture Colo and help, help. him what? and give him lots of advice um, and Ray Parler obviously you know he he went out you know after winning the league at White Hart Lane as you would expect not a lot of the others necessarily went out a la Raymondo but you know <laughs> Is that the name of his restaurant? <laughs> yeah. He went out and got stuck in afterwards and absolutely. enjoyed every bit of it. it absolutely, you know, he, he he remembers. And when he came into the team with Tony Adams and all that lot, it was, a, it was the original Tuesday Club, exactly. And although he realised that to have the career that he went on to have in the later part of his time with Arsenal under Wenger, he needed to change to an extent, he didn't change... <laughs> completely he didn't have... no he just did it sober <laughs> yeah ish, ish you know? yeah. <laughs> but but it was you know it was brilliant and I like the fact I that I remember actually about Parler when he was going to move to Middlesbrough and had a cut I can't remember how they were a couple of ex-Arsenal players on the telly and one of them let slip well that's not going to help his drinking <laughs> <laughs> going to the north east oh, yeah. <laughs> I just get back to Martin Keown I always loved the story that when Thierry arrived Martin Keown just would clatter him in in training okay, every, every time he had a chance mm. to do that toughening up to go this is what the premiership's about yeah. but that mm. was something you talk about that in training every day they didn't they didn't take it easy on each other you know there were times when you know there was almost this idea that Arsene Wenger probably should have been wincing on the touchline thinking someone's going to take somebody out here 
because they were so competitive in every single training session. But Ray Parler said that if they were playing an eight against eight game on a uh, on a Friday and going hell for leather at each other, when they went on, on Saturday, they had 16 of the most competitive guys you could ever imagine mm, yeah. all together in the same squad. And it's it was just too much Bulls. for everybody. That's what the Chicago Bulls used to say. The only good game they had all season <laughs> was against themselves in training. And then they and even United had given up. They'd given up trying to play Arsenal at football. They'd stopped. They'd started kicking us, charging about, trying to stop us playing. There was that much of an acceptance we were that good. Still managed to blow the cup semi-final. <laughs> so, that's the squad. We've got the stadium where they're all comfortable, all at home. It's compact. The fans love it. The atmosphere is amazing. They're all happy there. They're all at home there. Wenger's well entrenched. They've had success. He's confident. Pat Rice is great. The goalie's great. All the players are settled. They all get on. So then they start playing. So let's talk about the games. <laughs> <laughs> It was hard to go unbeaten for 49 games. It was hard to go unbeaten all season, but they started off quite well at the end of the last season with two big thumping wins. And then we went, started off pretty well, and then had a game at Old Trafford that was, when was that, September time? Yeah. Early September. on. Um, what did Keown have to say about <laughs> Van Nistelrooy had a penalty face. in the last minute? Slightly dodgy pen, I thought. Horse face. Horse face. And on top of that, Patrick Vieira had been sent off, hadn't he, because... I think the two things are absolutely linked. Mm. He'd done a sort of kick out in the direction of Van but was very far away from any actual contact. And they obviously hadn't actually (laughs) deliberately tried. He'd gone down feigning injury and got Vieira sent off. So Keown is pumped. (laughs) (laughs) Van smashes the penalty against the crossbar and Keown does not get on with the game at that point. Now, this is what I love about this, right? At that moment, the ball's in play. Right? <laughs> right At that moment, the game is going on. It's come back off the bar. The game is going on. And Keown is... Just <laughs> <laughs> is after Van What Something must have happened. There must have been an immediate foul or something to, to allow him to elbow him in the head the way that he did. I think also there's history there. Um, I got the feeling from Martin that he'd had enough of Van Nistelrooy even before that game and that there had been other matches where he'd he, been a problem. Uh, and he they cheated blatantly, you mean? I think... We talk about Bergkamp in a good way. With it. I mean, I'm sure United fans will say the same, but Van Nistelrooy was a really, really nasty player. And he, time and again, would batter in a sneaky way, not in a kind of sheer or a kind of oh, he did. And bustling the game, way, but a really sneaky we, way. When we lost the unbeaten run in that game, he put his studs down actually cold, didn't he, and got a... After the game, with video replay, and he got a three-match ban, should have been sent off on the day. Yeah, he was a... Well, he, that was say, the dark, dark side of the Dutch mentality, I would say. Uh, but Keown... Uh, <laughs> it's very international, this podcast. Keown, uh, Keown is, is he ashamed, embarrassed? Does he laugh? Does he smile coyly? Or does he go, yeah, that was a good day? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I, think he was, I think he's a bit embarrassed. Right. Oh. But it's mixed with a sense of... This pride. is why I did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did that. <laughs> well, it is. I mean, what was all equally funny was not just his reaction, but the reaction of our other players. When you say, when you even mention the Old Trafford nil-nil game, almost the first thing that seems to come into a lot of people's heads is Van, is the, the image of uh, Keon and Van Nistelrooy. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I think it was um, 
Colo Torre did this kind of cartoon laugh, like ha ha ha. <laughs> you, know, <so laughs> it was fun, you know, you can tell that they 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 regard it quite warmly. A yeah. lot of them as well, and that it was actually important, and it was and a symbolic. Were, it's it's of revealed the, in your book that there were afters in the tunnel as well. Yes, I, I, I <laughs> which is something so. that's rarely discussed. I know. Can you imagine? But there was some carrying on in the tunnel, which is uh, all I want to know about. One of the uh, one of the players said to me, "Well, you know all about that, don't you?" And and <laughs> really? in the middle of interview, and I said, "Well, please tell me more." And then they suddenly just said, "Well, you can find out from the others." And there was a kind of it was difficult to get clear details let's say i think but it kicked off but yeah i think it was i think it was incredibly intense um <laughs> i mean they all fought for each they all fought for each other as well which um again is something that's been thrown about with the new team because um because actually cole and uh parlor got charged as well didn't they didn't they carry on after after the game getting stuck into the people again? got charged for I mean, Lauren got a ban, didn't he? Um, several people got banned for shoving Van Nistelrooy all around the pitch, mm. all the way back to his own half. Um, <laughs> there were a few, there were some hefty fines and a few games handed out after that, but it was worth it. Well, the, is it the, the fine margins of that if, the, if that penalty had gone in, just yes, well, imagine turn it around and say it's, it's the, the boots on the other foot, and Ferguson's players are doing that. Ferguson loves it; he wants that. Yeah. And he said, he talked about, when he signed Viv Anderson, he saw a game where Arsenal played at Old Trafford and David Rowcastle got sent off for tangling with Norman Whiteside. It was a, a thug. 87. Yeah. And he got sent off in a game that we, we lost, losing an unbeaten run, funny enough. And uh, Rocky was in tears after the game. And Viv Anderson lost it. And he was on the right-hand side looking after Rocky, behind him, experienced player, you know, Rocky's minder looking after him, and he lost it in that game. He was furious, he's screaming, he's ranting, and all this at Whiteside. And uh, Ferguson immediately bought him. He <laughs> said, <laughs> <laughs> The reason I bought you, he bought him the following summer. The reason I bought you was because of the way you were when, really? when, when right. Norman got Rowcastle sent off. That's why I bought you. That's all the reaction of the Arsenal player. That's when Ferguson knew he had a proper opposition. Because he didn't have a lot of time, really, a lot of respect, it seemed, at the time, for Arsene Wenger, or whether that portrayed fear, actually. But he, ser- he, he certainly did for the team. I, well, I remember, didn't he say, oh, well, they had a lot of draws? Yeah, when someone they didn't win him in about style. The, oh, yeah, they, well, they had a lot of draws. Um, did you, inter- you didn't interview him, did you? No, no, no. I didn't have that. I, didn't have, I would have liked to have interviewed more people externally, but I just was quite a tight deadline, so I kind of was under enough pressure to try and speak to the to the uh, Arsenal players. I yeah. did speak to um, James Scowcroft, who played for Leicester on the final day, mm. which was no, quite yeah. nice to get the perspective of someone playing against that team and on that day. And that was that was very revealing. And the thing that he remembers very clearly... Uh, well, there's two great stories. The first one is of um, them arriving at Highbury and going into the away dressing room and doing their usual preparation for an away game. They'd already been relegated, but they'd been told that... Um, because of the amount of money that you get, depending on what position you finish in the league, there was about a million pounds or so at stake, whether they finished bottom-bottom or second from bottom or third from bottom, all of which was possible according to the result. So they were they were informed that it would be in everybody's interests if they tried very hard to, to get a result. And uh, Mickey Adams, the manager, came in, sat down. The usual procedure for an away game would be everybody's getting, getting dressed and he brings out his clipboard and a big... Uh, 
big white sheet of paper, sort of A3 size, one of those wall chart things, and writes down the opposition team and then goes through one by one who's doing what, watch out for this this player, watch out for they do this here. And and uh, he wrote down the uh, Arsenal team sheet, um, took a look at his players and said, all the best with this little lad to walk out. <laughs> And they were actually 1-0 up. They were 1-0 up yeah. and, and playing quite well. And Arsenal were very, as was the case in, in all of the last four matches, having actually won the league. Mm. Yeah. In, you know, very flat. Um, Could easily have gone wrong. It did in 98. They lost the last two league games. He, they? He, he remembers seeing Arsene Wenger in the second half going to Thierry and saying, you know, come on, step it up. And that he, he, he said he'd never seen a player ever go from sort of first gear to fifth gear so smoothly mm. as Thierry did in, the, in you know from that moment to just step everybody up to recover the game yeah, yeah. but it was a laser guided pass from oh, Dennis well that's because uh, I was trying to work out my favourite goal of that season can we do this now yeah so I do, well, I mean, let's what was do it yours? now it's a brilliant question um, well Alan you and I have talked before about the, the Thierry goal against Liverpool which yeah. Significance. We played Liverpool Which, at Highbury. We mm. lost the cup semi final. We lost the Champions League quarter final, <coughs> and we were two one down at half time, looking like we might blow the league for the second season running. With all the same feeling of fragility, when the chips are down, the football goes out the window, and they lose their bottle. And uh, Thierry stepped up. Was it a hat trick he got on that day? He did, but the 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 great goal was the second goal. Um, and, but that was a goal that made it uh, made it three two. Beat about five players. Put Carragher on including Carragher. Oh. Yeah, because Arsenal fans have never looked at Carragher the same uh, since. Carragher's never looked anywhere since because he was twisted around like a sort of action man. His body is <laughs> facing the opposite way to his legs. Yeah, he sold him two dummies as I remember. He faked a shoot. They sold him one dummy with a kind of a drop the shoulder. So he was now he was already tense and leaning one way, and then he faked a shot and Carragher did a pirouette. Yeah. It was absolutely stunning. And then when he when he stopped the pirouette, Henri had gone the balls in the net. What what was nice when Henri was remembering that goal was uh, he he said that what was I doing there? And if you actually look back at the goal and at the video, Henri's just around the centre circle. And if you think about yeah. the situation, the desperation to win the game, and your main goal scorer is nowhere near the box. Right, yeah. And he he he, 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 he was almost sounded like it was like some kind of big mystical <laughs> moment. Like, what was I doing? Yeah, the boots made me go there. <laughs> the boots are holding <laughs> me back. Why are the boots dropping me deep? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he picked up. The thing about Henri was he could cover quite a lot of hybrid quite quickly. Mm. And he was on the edge of the box in a nanosecond. Mm. And then, yeah, we won that game 4 2 and got it, the season back on track, really. It didn't feel like it was going to go wrong after that. What was your favourite goal, Dean? I'd, uh, you just I'd, watched the DVD. I, yeah, I, I would I'd... also sorry to interrupt, but I also the the first the Vieira goal at White Hart Lane. Oh yeah, that that break yeah. in like about three and a half seconds. <laughs> yeah, was absolutely. Well, the, the, I, I I was saying earlier the second one of that is really good. It's it's quite interesting, especially interesting hearing Andy Gray talk about it on the commentary. And also Ron Atkinson appears really? <laughs> in some of the Champions League. That's quite a blast from the past. Um, Jamie Redknapp played in that game. He, he did. He did. And scored. Uh, yeah, he actually got quite a good goal, I suppose. Um, but that second goal, and you kind of forget how wonderful that was. And that was sort of pretty much... Um, it looked so easy to... Yeah, I mean, it was absolutely. two up in 25 minutes and cruising. Sliced through them. 
And then the second half, they got one back, and then and then Lehman had a mouth, didn't Flash of, yeah. And you saw the little flaw in his character that probably cost us the Champions League, but in two years later. When he lost his rag with Robbie Keane, don't let Robbie Keane wind you up in the last minute. He's not he's worth it. On your toes. It's not worth it. If you're really having a, that much trouble with him, sit on the floor and say you're injured. See you calm down. But he pushed him over, gave away a pen. Now, after that, is this right that he was in the dressing room with Sol Campbell and they didn't? He didn't think they'd won the league. He thought he'd cost them winning the league. That's right. He had a bit of a brain freeze. I think um, it seems incredible now, but. Because you know there's been so much about what you know what needed to happen to win the league at White Hart Lane. This conceding of a last-minute goal, he he felt that Arsenal hadn't won the league because of it. So as soon as the final whistle went, which was almost immediately after the penalty, and uh, Robbie King's lovely little somersault celebration, always looked he good. just oh, so graceful. <laughs> he just stomped <laughs> off down the tunnel, um, in absolute mess, uh, yeah. distraught. Didn't so it's the done. most unbelievable. That strange, bizarre scenario where you've got three quarters of the team out celebrating winning the league at White Hart Lane, and, and everybody knows how much that means. And Jens is, is down in the dressing room, and then in comes Sol Campbell, who's also got the hump because well, he's desperate to win. Sol Campbell is also he's left the scene in order not to be provocative or to just to get out of the way of yep. the hatred. Yep. So he's in the dressing room for that reason, but also is annoyed because he really he wanted really to win. Wanted to win. Uh, and then Arson comes in because he also wants to get out of the way. And um, he's also very cross. <laughs> With Jens. Yes. And how's it go at Jens? I'd love to bring a fly on the wall for this. Sounds fantastic, doesn't it? <laughs> just just ha- how odd. And you've got, meanwhile, you know, Henri's leading the charge with his twirling his jerk around They did his all head go off the pitch, all... didn't they? They all went off the pitch well, not, after I that. Think, I think they went down to the corner first of all and then they went back off the pitch and then they came out and when they came out the second time, what I remember Jens was, and, and Sol and the others came I remember they went over they, won the, they went to the corner and then the section, but they were told not to yeah apparently well, the Arsenal told. fans were in that corner and the Tottenham fans behind the goal you thought oh they might go home <laughs> they didn't go home <laughs> <laughs> suddenly it was obviously going to get potentially extremely nasty so the Arsenal players exited and went back down the tunnel until the Tottenham fans cleared the ground. The Tottenham fans were kind of ushered out the ground and then all stayed on on Tottenham High Road wanted to lynch anybody in red for a couple of hours afterwards. Is this the one where um, da- where David Dean stopped and picked you up? David Dean it? gave me a lift The down. last chopper out of work. It was. It was the last chopper out of Saigon. <laughs> 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 you could not get out. But you did- couldn't get out. <laughs> I was out in the car park down the gave, front. I was gave, in the press box. He gave you a lift? I tapped on his window so he couldn't give me a lift, could you? He goes, where do you want to go? I said, anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and he let me in his Range Rover. But, um, uh, oh, his son was in there, the one who cleans out our squad every summer. <laughs> and uh, he's just, his wife's in the front. I don't think she wanted me to get in. She didn't know I was. But, and then he's, he's sort of noodling his way out through the crowd in his Range Rover with his mobile on one hand. And this is what I remember, getting texts, right? And he, says, he turns to his wife and he goes, oh, that's a nice one from Rixie. <laughs> that's something I remember about him <laughs> and then we turned he turned his whatever it is V8 down the Tottenham High Road and I was looking through the glass thinking they're all going they're behind me and the euphoria the feeling of euphoria I remember I was in, actually in the tunnel on the edge of the pitch when they all came out Graham Stack came out Stack and Keown were the only ones who knew me from seeing me on TV like, the rest of them all foreign and know who I am so they all run past me I stopped Henri for an autograph I had to, no, someone else stopped him for an autograph and I joined the queue 
Yeah, Stack and Keo and I had a bit of a with. <laughs> <laughs> then I watched them all go down the t- and I was sort of there. I was there. I mean, I was as made up as it's possible to be as a human. <laughs> and they had an inflatable Premiership trophy, which Ashley Cole That's right. went and put on the centre spot. This oh. is, you know, this is proper provocation. Wonderful scenes. Wonderful scenes. Sooners and Turkey sort of thing. Isn't yeah. It? yeah, yeah, yeah. Alan, can I ask you what you did when the goals went in? Uh, uh, well, I yeah, when the Arsenal I, I don't goals went in. I don't think I stood up. No, I was sitting next to Matt Dickinson from the Times, who's. Bit of a grumpy kid, actually. <laughs> <laughs> You're not enjoying this. This is the best. Uh, this is the best team that's ever played football. Did you see that goal? And you, you feel like he's trying to find fault with it. Why do you have an eyewitness? Me? No, uh, my, no, my, no. My, but my I, I was, I was, um, I was in the scouts enclosure. Oh yeah, because you had to blag a ticket as well, didn't I you? I did, yes. Um, yeah, because I couldn't get in the press box. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some two bits of liberty had tried to. <laughs> <laughs> This is, this is why I'm told why uh, Oliver, Oliver Dolt of the Daily Mirror hates my guts. Oh, really? It's because he thinks I had no right to have a seat in the press box. I blagged one from the time. I was writing columns at the time about football, and I wrote a column which the, the Times headline was David Dean Saved My Life. David Dean, by the way, after that, sent me, completely unprompted, and maybe sent out hundreds of these, I don't know, uh, a framed copy of the league table. With Arsenal on top, and it said at the bottom, White Hart Lane, then the date, 2004. And it's in a frame, the league table, Arsenal champions. Just came out, came in the post for no reason I could think of. I mean, Other he, than you hitched a lift. He's given me a lift. I should be the one sending <laughs> gifts. <laughs> he got the headline, David Dean saved my life in the time. Right. Yeah, that's what I got. That, that might be the... The prompt. But, but people thought that um, people thought that I shouldn't have been in the pro. I had no right to be in the. And I was anyway. I was. <laughs> I'm going to say this. Uh, <laughs> this interview's uh, carrying on as friendly as it has, only because Amy managed to blag a ticket yeah. to the scout. <laughs> it's yeah. going composure. Who got you that then? Quentin Closure. David Dean. David Dean. <laughs> Keeping, them, keeping people who write for the papers sweet. This is why, this is why Arsenal are so fine. For so there's so much work going on behind the scenes. Give her one, give him one, just keep on, him sweet. Just on that, Amy, what was it like sort of being on the beat as a you know as a reporter and a massive Arsenal fan that season? Magnificent. I mean, it, I mean, are you I mean, are you going in and pitching articles, or people just going, all oh, right, we better get Amy for this one? Or I mean, did you feel that? No, I mean, you know, my, my role. At the time, I wrote about all teams, but did quite a bit of Arsenal. And, and I, obviously, because I had reasonably good connections with people there, if it was trying to get an interview, I would probably get a better chance of getting an interview with an Arsenal player than perhaps other journalists. So I got to speak to quite a few of them And uh, at the time, and it was really nice being able to kind of contrast speaking to them then when they were current players, if you like, to 10 years later speaking to them now, that they're a lot of them are ex-players, um, and with that bit more distance and that bit more freedom to talk was really nice because they had such different insights now that mm. they would have possibly felt able to give over, you know, at the time. Um, but yeah, I do remember sitting in the press box for the Leicester game at Highbury and thinking, oh my God, you know, this huge sense of responsibility to write about history. We were, everybody was hoping um, to get the unbeaten season. And I was writing writing about it, and it did feel sort of it was one of those sort of slightly surreal out of body experiences for a moment where you think I can't believe I'm actually doing this. Yeah. So yeah, it, I felt very very lucky. Mm. So you're hoping, like, as I am, that 
Chelsea lose sooner rather than later this season because the idea that someone oh, I had that. could just yeah. match it, equal it, you know, like Mourinho earlier on this season already saying it will never be done, it's impossible, it's, you know, oh, he's thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> he's thinking about it. Yeah. They want it. Everyone wants that record. I mean, and pretended he didn't. It's, it's very interesting looking back and because there were quite a few sort of Bad draws, weren't we? And and twelve draws in the season. You think now of you know the hell that we go through, you know, if we drop points at Leicester or, or or anything like that, and that perspective. And this was obviously before Twitter as well, you know. And you think, right? Well, did we draw with Fulham at home? And Van der Sar had an amazing game, and you know, you didn't feel that tension in the, the way that you do now. Yeah. That you do. Every know. result is so poured over because there's so many, there's so much online. There's, the sports sections are bigger. There's more and more and more. Yeah. It was just like old football. Mm. It was just at the end of old football, wasn't it, really? And I think, mm. again, there's that connection with Highbury. Mm. You know, the way that when you look back and you get a bit of nostalgia for that team in that time, it's all about going to Highbury as well. Mm. And it, does, it doesn't feel the same, does it? No. Also, at that time, Arsenal did have the biggest wage bill, didn't they? they had, and that usually is an indicator of who's going to finish top of the league. We'd, Arsenal paid well, paid mm. better than they had done in the past. I mean, a few players, certainly players who come from the youth team, always used to be resentful that signers got good wages straight away and they never got recognised. Tony Adams used to go in for meetings with George Graham, like, don't worry, lads. And then he'd come out and he'd have a pay rise. <laughs> <laughs> That's that George gets in sweet. But it was quite difficult. But Arsenal suddenly treated them with it was a handshake at training and no bollockings and decent money and they all got treated like grown-ups. Well, that's, but that, isn't that why they stayed as long as they did? I mean, when you think about the calibre of player of, of, of Omri Vieira, um, yeah, Burkamp and so on, I mean, obviously some did leave, uh, Overmars, uh, Anelka and so on, who went ahead of the schedule that Arsenal would have wanted. He did keep... The players two key who were ones. The, the two, two key ones were Vieira obviously and Henri. Exactly. And every year there was this hovering, was it going to happen again? Real Madrid and Barcelona had taken Batiste, they'd taken Anelka, they'd taken Overmars, might they come again? And every year somehow, perhaps because really he was their dad and they were teenagers when they came and they couldn't leave him. <laughs> they just yeah. couldn't leave him. They both left him when they were 29, didn't they? Yes, but I also think that you know they stayed because they They're enjoyed some, some success. Yeah. They, and they loved living in London and they enjoyed Highbury and they, they bought into the culture of the club. And, just, and they'd been overseas already or to another country. So yeah, and suffered. Yeah. But just going back to the, um, the AGM briefly, Arson did his usual speech where he gets up and, and is very, very polished or always saying kind of things, no matter what's been going on, that people feel positive again. Mm-hmm. And one thing he talked about is the, um, this idea that there's the, the new core of English players coming through that you know, this is obviously quite a change from how it's been in, in recent years and from the Alan Pardew days of uh, <laughs> yes. that famous that famous comment from a few years back. But, uh, you know, he said that what he wants to do is create more, more in terms of developing with young players that come through and that he really believes in teaching them about the club and he thinks this is massively important for the way that football is going, the way football is is that when you get young players of talent coming through, you, you talked about Jack Wilshire being such a, a, a great stroke of fortune, a miracle being in, in mm-hmm. Arsenal's backyard. 
They want to integrate in them. And this was what he was trying to do in a way is when they moved from the Emirates by buying a young Fabregas and Bentner and Danielson, some of the ones that didn't quite work out. But the Project Youth mm. was, a, was a way of saying, look, we're going to create this team that's going to be great with the best young players we can get and we're going to educate them to love Arsenal so they're going to stay. But, and, hey, but, but they're not. And yeah. say to you that Project Youth was a disaster yes. and the disintegration of the Invincibles was... It was too soon. Of course. And there was too, it was too soon to drop those people. And the accelerated progress, not to pick on individual players, but say Song Ahead of Gilberto is one that sticks in my mind, in hindsight was an error-strewn fiasco. And that actually now people have been given contracts at 31, 32 who would, pre- you know, in the days when Pires was told, you know, you're 30, 31, you're past it. And, and Pires said that he left because he felt like when he got subbed in Paris... He doesn't believe in me anymore. And he was more on the bench more often, you know, in games. He doesn't believe in me anymore. And it broke his heart. And people in Spain wanted him and he went to Spain. You couldn't blame him. But Gilberto, I know, wanted to stay because I went to the Arsenal charity ball and spoke to him and said, are you staying? And he said, I hope so. (laughs) That was my only conversation with him. (laughs) He wanted to stay. I don't think Jens Lehmann was too happy about Almunia taking his place in goal. Losing Ashley Cole was a disaster. And when he said, I want 60, they should have given him 70. It was a massive error and maybe made him captain. Maybe he'd have been the worst captain ever, but it might have made him, made him a man. I don't know. And there were too many mistakes made. They broke up too soon. Is that just me or do you agree? Completely agree. Uh, I was still enjoying the glow. <laughs> oh, I didn't know we were going to the negative. <laughs> I just need to do that with my face. Mm. Just all those people that you spoke of replacing, and, I mean, and you've touched on it before, uh, well, both of you, Amy and uh, Alana, but... The characters that they were replaced with. I mean, you took out very strong individual characters who could stand up by themselves and stand up for their teammates and replaced them with just weaker characters. I mean, boys. Well, it's interesting watching David Bentley's little interview. Uh, And David Bentley, because he had had that game. On the the Invincibles video? Yes. Had I mentioned the Invincibles video? You watched it last night. I did my homework. Um, uh, But he's, because he came on against Middlesbrough, he came on for Dennis Bergkamp. Scored a stunning goal. Scored an amazing goal. Yes, it was a cup tie. And his interview is him, spiky hair, jewellery, and everything that epitomises what is wrong with kind of that youth football mm. yeah but what's really interesting is that he did an interview just recently about because he obviously retired quite early from football mm. saying about how actually he really didn't like being a footballer and you know all those things that you would immediately associate with the worst kind of factors of, of a you know brash young kid getting it all too young you know, mm. in football is that he said when he was a kid he loved playing football and then the further he went into professional football and all that that entails the more he realised he just didn't like didn't like it didn't the like whole, being famous I don't know I don't know whether it's just being famous but he just, just didn't like the whole, out. The you whole can't thing. be yourself but he, well, he the Tuesday he, club could be themselves the Tuesday club could go to a pub on Blackstock Road and no one would take a photograph of them and no one would hashtag it or tweet it or Facebook it they'd mm. go out and get levered on Blackstock Road in the afternoon mm. and they could do that and that's team bonding and they could have fights in the tunnel, and they could do all that. Mm. But David Bentley can go anywhere. If you go to a club, suddenly you're in a VIP area. I mean, really, it is a it is an issue that side of things, and a lot of players struggle. I think Ashley Cole struggled with that. Mm. I think oh, he completely. really, really struggled with being famous, being slagged off in the press, being slagged off online every time. And he couldn't. How many times do you think he's googled his own name? 
50 or 60,000. I mean, he cannot let it lie. And you want to say to him, actually, you're the greatest left-back that's ever played football. You've won more things than anyone else. You're possibly going to win the league with Roma this season. Who knows? And it's so sad that you can't enjoy it. Yeah. It's so sad. I think the environment makes it very difficult for people to enjoy it, actually, as well. Yeah, yeah I'm sure it does. I mean, Henri was pretty touchy too, wasn't he? he didn't, Henri would be one, you'd think, this is a guy who's got it all. 30 goals, 20 assists, World Player of the Year, runner-up, whatever it was. Footballer of the Year, three times. The best. The best, right? Phoning up journalists who are giving him a bad review, <laughs> basically. Yeah. I mean, yeah. do you know some journalists to be phoned up? Yes. What do they, what do they say happened? How does it feel when he comes on the phone? <laughs> Surprising, um, well, not that surprising because he did did do it relatively regularly. If he read something that he thought was hugely unfair and wrong, he would have it out with someone. And I, actually, most of the the journalists thought that was quite impressive of him. I mean, I'm sure there's probably a kudos element to that. Oh, look, yeah, I got a call off Thierry Henry slagging off my stuff. I don't know. But he's I, pretty I, intelligent I, and articulate too, isn't he's he? He's m- more intelligent and articulate than most people. He's more really, than David really... Bentley. <laughs> Sorry. And it was a nice balance then as well, because um, obviously after the the, in, uh, the Invincible team, then Thierry is just, so top-heavy for Thierry as the star. But did he actually enjoy being part of a team of people who could quite easily be described as, as good as him? Do you know what I mean? I think that was the beauty of that team, that, you know... Uh, I can't remember who told me this the other day. They said that uh, um, someone had asked Sol Campbell or something like, how did it feel like, you know, being in the same team as... Thierry Henry and he was like well, how did Thierry Henry feel being in the same team as me and, I you just know, imagine Sol Campbell <laughs> saying that like a Tory MP <laughs> <laughs> but Campbell but, was epic and he's, I remember saying at the beginning of that season if we keep Campbell Vieira and Henry fit for 38 games we are going to walk this league they were that good mm. they were that good all of them were I think they all recognised how good they all were though and they knew that it wasn't about all you know We've got a superstar here, and the rest of us are just the supporting cast. And for I don't years, think they felt every like year that since, and I don't think we've been saying, like that who, either. Would they get in that side? Would they get in that side? About every player, whether it says Fabregas or Robin van Persie, who were probably the two subsequently, and now there's Meza Ozil, and and we'll be able to talk about Alexis Sanchez after he's been at the club for a while. Would they get in that team? Would they get in that team? It's very hard to say yes about even the best of the following eleven. Yeah, but they get in the squad. Yeah, yeah. maybe. Like the, what yeah. head of Edu? Tough. <laughs> it's tough. Would they be able to mix it on it? I mean, that's the but thing. Would you, you know. have Wiltor or or, or um, Carnu or Alexis? I don't know. I mean, it's definitely a conversation. Yeah. Well, that, yeah. that, that was a very interesting thing. You noticed that Carnu and Wiltord were still around. You know, you look at our glut of strikers now, and they had two, you know, two great players who, you know, got a few Champions League, uh, Carling Cup games, you know. Do you World think that? Do you think that? Going back to the breakup of it, that the wage bill was so big that it wasn't just about Project Youth. It wasn't just about we can't spend any money on transfer fees. It was about we're going to have to clear out these people because they're taking their wages are too high, and the the wages of Song, the wages of Danielson, the wages of Senderos, and all the people who came in are half. So you're saving millions of pounds. On bringing in young players, you're trying to dress it up. It's a youth project because you know we can't afford the transfer fees. But actually, you're saying, "Sorry, we've got to clear this lot out. We can't afford them anymore." No one. I mean, I'm just saying that because it, yeah, it occurs maybe, to me. Maybe uh, you might might well be onto something there. But I think there was there was a fear about how to manage the move financially, and they they really bought into this idea that Project Youth was the way to do it. 
And actually, in many ways, it, it could have been and should have been if Abramovich hadn't turned up and completely transformed yeah. so radically the football landscape. And then subsequent... It's heartbreaking, because <laughs> 05, we'd have won that league. We'd have won the league. We were runners-up to Chelsea. Chelsea would not have been anywhere. I remember talking to Lee Dixon, right, and we beaten them or something. We've just beaten Chelsea, and he goes, "That lot will never win the league." Like a real sneer, you know, <laughs> because the club, the setup, the Dennis Wise, and all this they just were not. They didn't have it in them. They just weren't there, and that was where they were when Abramovich came along. You know, they, they'd won a couple of cups and they had some good players, but they were never going to be solid and win a title. You know, that was the feeling with them. To so to lose it to them in '05, that was that was another double. I mean, really, Abramovich took that from us, and that, that was grim. And then, then, then there's the stadium. Then there's also the issue, wasn't there, that Henri stayed for one more year. Please, please, Thierry, stay. We need you to shift those season tickets at the Emirates. If you go, you take 10,000 season tickets with you. And he stayed. He didn't want to stay, did he? He wanted to leave then. He stayed one more year, went to Barca the following year. So that was, it all just seemed to just collapse around that same moment. The worst time to build a stadium, in a way. Yeah, but that, but it, it wasn't the worst time to build it when they thought of doing it and when yeah. they put the finances in. You know, remember that they've been talking about doing it for a good decade, more or less, and before they actually And it's what drove moved. David Dean out of the club in the end, wasn't it? it because is. he wanted Arsenal to play at Wembley is that, and save that 400 million quid and invest it in the team to match Abramovich. Well, I think the decision had been made by them. They didn't know about Abramovich. When they made the decision, when the, they signed all the paperwork and they went through hundreds of pages of contracts and God knows what and things with the council. I mean, it was a massive, massive project. Mm. It took up basically a few years of Ken Fryer and Danny Fisman's professional lives mm. sorting out that stadium move, yeah. negotiating with All the businesses moving and everything. Exactly. It was, a, it was a huge project. And, you know, they made all those decisions pre-Abramovich. And all the projections of, okay, this is how much we're going to have to spend for the first few seasons, and then this will happen, and then we'll be making this much money. And all of those projections almost were immediately obliterated the second that Roman Abramovich uh, um, flew his helicopter over Stamford Bridge. Parked his tanks on the lawn (laughs) and five £50 notes, because he did want to buy Henri, didn't he? He wanted to buy Henri and he wanted to buy Vieira, offered a lot of money. (laughs) But it was unthinkable to David Dean to sell those players to a rival. Is a bit it's hurting me now thinking about Van Persie at Old Trafford and Fabregas at Stamford Bridge. I remember the first game Chelsea post Abramovich, and they were. I remember, and they were singing "We're effing loaded" <laughs> like that, and, it, and they had Russian hats on, and it all looked quite funny. Yeah, and you're going, no, oh. we're all going. This will go wrong. Yeah, yeah. No, I remember Martin Samuel saying me, "Something will happen. Something always does." Yeah, they'll they'll find <laughs> the bodies know. in Russia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Someone <laughs> yeah. will poison him. Yeah. Uh, yeah, how, how yeah, that I turned out now. to be wishful thinking. Yeah, yeah. The first, the moment when you knew it had happened, though, wasn't it? Was when they won the Champions League quarterfinal on our ground. And in the book, it's interesting the cups that season. Before we started recording this podcast, we were remembering Middlesbrough in the League Cup, and that was a tight semi-final that went against us. And Middlesbrough went on to get to the UEFA Cup final the following year. You know, I mean, that was a big deal for them. And that was McLaren, and they had a good team. So you're thinking, second leg, put the team out. Put the first team out. We want to, by the way, we're in a cup, let's win it. Put the first team out. And at the time, unthinkable, it's only the League Cup. What a weekend. Now I look back and think, oh, God, I wish we'd just put the team out, second leg. Would it have mattered? Gone out, battered them, gone to the final, beaten Bolton, won the League Cup. What's the arm in that? Two more matches. 
And then he gets to, in the book, he does, Wenger talks about the FA Cup semi-final against Manchester United, Villa Park, four days before we play Chelsea in the return, and he wishes he'd sacrificed it. Is that, what did he talk, what did he say about that? I thought that, that was really fascinating, because it's felt like the big regret. And mm. in fact, one of the big senses I got talking to, you know, 15 or 20 people involved in that season was how, with all of them, they thought, oh, we should have won the Champions League that year. Mm. It's, it was a very consistent theme. It kept coming back. Everybody that you spoke to, you could just, you could see it in their faces. You could see it in their body language when you, you know, you dare to mention that game at, you know, Wayne Bridge's name or whatever and, oh, we should have won the Champions League that year. We were, it was absolutely... We got a draw at Chelsea. We were 1-0 up. Was it Reyes scored? Yeah. 1-0 up at half-time in the second leg at Highbury. And then the moment they got the away goal, it collapsed. They went on and lost to Monaco in the semi-final. Yeah. And Monaco got... It was, the, it was the first Mourinho... It was the classic Matador. Monaco, good footballing team, lots of good players. Was it Liza Rizou, I think, was in the side? Some good players, anyway. And Porto did them 3-0 in about the last 20 minutes when they were knackered, having not even tried to play football for the first yeah. hour, you know. Which is possibly what would have happened to Arsenal if they got through. Maybe, but you're absolutely right. I think the feeling within the team is that, that they would... They felt like they could have done it and should have done it. But the, the fascinating one was Wenger, as you say, admitting and realising that, you know, they were desperate. They were desperate to win the Champions League, that group. And they felt they, they were the best team in Europe at that time. Mm. And their, their passage to, the, to winning it was Chelsea, Monaco, Porto. Exactly. And, and for Arsene to turn around now and say, if I'd have, I, you know, my one regret of that season is that I didn't really throw the Man United game. So what but was the, a- he thought, he felt that there was enough in the team to manage all three matches and in the end he d- he didn't he played a pretty strong uh, team for the Man United semi-final he left Aladier, and Pires, didn't he? Aladier was, was, was uh, started his first game in Yonks I think that night um, uh, instead of uh, instead of Henri but he felt that the efforts that the team put into a kind of really dogged not particularly pretty match against Manchester United in that semi-final at Villa Park he felt the physical effects of that in the last quarter of an hour against Chelsea at home, which is when really the energy away. drains. So that's what he thinks. Because I was going to, I mean, I've blacked, I've blanked that out so much. That I, I can remember very little about that, apart from us, Alan, sitting in the pub afterwards. And then you kind of. Well, I remember about that. As we were driving back from Villa Park, we went to, yeah, and we you went got to, the ump because I turned the, turned the radio off and the Grand National came on. <laughs> <laughs> you were going, I've got a bet on that. <laughs> I was going, I hate horse racing. <laughs> <laughs> now I don't know who won. Can you imagine it? Being in the car and not knowing who, because you know there's no Twitter, there's no internet, right? We just have to drive up to the M6 not knowing who won the National. I had to talk to my hours. mates, it was killing me. <laughs> no, no, I was saying I, I completely blanked out the, uh, the Chelsea game, but we sat in a pub afterwards and then we went through, we left quite drunk afterwards and you went through all the things, that, all the worst things that happened in your Arsenal watching career. Oh, yeah, you're just It's was, not yeah, as bad as. Yeah, yeah we had to talk him down. <laughs> it's not as bad as Valencia 1980. That was what we got to. But what I was going to, what I was wondering, <laughs> what was the, what, yeah, what, exactly, yeah. What would throw in the game, do you mean in terms of um, putting out a weaker team? Put the because... Carlin Cup team or the Coca Cola Cup team or whatever it was in. So Put that, that every, team out So that everyone was United. at full So that they're at full throttle. Full throttle. Because we played the same team. We, we played our strongest team, but he just thinks that we wilted in that last 15 he is that brought, what it is he left Henri and Pires out and he brought them off the bench and it was too little against too late. Chelsea against Manchester against United Man- yeah. the thing was that we beat Manchester United on their own pitch two years previously without Thierry Henry so there was a feeling that we could beat Man United without Thierry Henry Ryan Giggs, Ryan Giggs, and that <laughs> oh yeah well that was the 03 yeah. that was the 03 cup we could do it without him that was the theory but we didn't we blew it but the thing what the 
that was the first. That was Ranieri was the manager, but that was the Abramovich money. That was Claude McAlady and Frank Lampard. I remember them passing it around someone in our midfield, thinking, "Uh oh." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Crespo as well. Crespo was there. It was a bit he? later, I think. Crespo, but no, I think Crespo yeah. was that season. Was he in the team? Yeah, because he, 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 he scored against us. At, uh, oh, he scored a screamer, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Screamer. We didn't make very many chances in that second half, did we? We were tired. Against... We were tired, and they could pass it. They had a decent side. Do you think? Because um, I've always kind of said this. I might be. Just because it was such a such a blow, do you feel or do, you mentioned that the squad felt they should have won the Champions League? Do they? Did they feel? Do you feel in this room that the season has always got that asterisk behind it or uh, next to it? Or you just you know is everyone kind of you know we did we went through the season unbeaten? I don't know. The, the, the United fans will say it does because they'll say to you, "Give me a treble or an unbeaten season, and I'll take a treble." Thank you very much. Um, we'd say, well, we'll have an unbeaten season because it's, <laughs> yeah. it's your joy, it's your pleasure, it's your no one's done that. And they were great, they were the best. But they, they, oh, yeah, there, is, there, is a, there is a moment, you know Arsenal wants that European Cup. You know Henri left to win the European Cup. And you know it's there, it's the empty space in Arsenal's trophy cabinet, in Arsenal, Arsene Wenger's career. And the opportunities to win it, is a rare thing because there are monstrous clubs out there. Real Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern Munich. You look who's won it in the, in the years since. Mm. And AC Milan, monstrous clubs, you know. Mm. And so the, the, when it opened up like that and you had a great team with the best player in Europe playing for you, you've got to seize the day. What's interesting is the way that I think a lot of players look back from that time and they don't necessarily think that the, the, the 2006 team who reached the final and were within minutes of... Of, yeah, winning uh, of winning it should have won it they think the 2014 who had a lot more to do really should have won it yeah. because they regard that 2014 as the best of its time and they don't necessarily regard the 06 team as the best of its time in, in terms of you yeah well our, the, um, our back four wasn't it the cobbled together <laughs> back Ibuwe, four Sendros, Ture and Flamini yeah but you know who's in front of them Gilberto Silva yeah. <laughs> <laughs> always back to Gilberto <laughs> Kept ten consecutive clean sheets and Thierry Henry up front and oh, an epic. Cesc Fabregas, Perez yeah. was still there, Jungberg was still there. There was enough of a mixture, and that's my point really about post '06. Was it suddenly it wasn't about mixing the old and the new? It was about all new, a whole new team. Mm. Van, Van Persie had been around, Gal Clichy had been around. There were people who had been brought in aged 19, 20 or whatever, and then they got promoted. So there was a sense of some players growing into the side. But there, was some, there were a lot who were accelerated into it a bit too quickly and then stalled in their development, really. And there was no way... If Frank Lampard was playing against Danielson, you know, it was a case of bothered. <laughs> you know, and Danielson's busting a gut out there. He's never fought him for effort, but it's just too, too big an ask, isn't it? Maybe just simply physically. I mean, that was one of the things about it. I thought, I don't mind, all right, all right, I don't mind all these kids. Where's the power? That's, where's the power and the pace? And it's sort of a shift. I spoke to Pat Rice last season. I went to Carrow Road uh, as a guest of Stephen Fry's, as director of Norwich City. Very pleasant afternoon in there with Delia's uh, cooking. And, uh, and Pat Rice is there. Lovely to see him. Massively unwell. Terrible operation. All this. Back, you know, he's back. And I had a bit of a chat with him and I said, I said to him, why, why was there the change? He was talking about the Invincibles team. He was talking about how opposition players used to look across them in the, at them in the tunnel and think, well, no chance. Look at the size of them for a start. I said, why did he go to 
smaller technical ball playing? Why was it all suddenly about retention of possession? Why happened to the explosive power and the break? Why is it all, if we got the ball for 70% of the time, we'll win all little what? Why did he do that? Why did he shift to smaller players? Expecting the insight. And he goes, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, if you don't know, <laughs> no one knows. And no, and Arsene never really explained it. I did read something about, there were stats about Real Madrid and Barcelona who were perennially going deep into the Champions League and Barcelona especially winning it, um, retaining the ball. I mean, in the final against us in 06, they had the ball for 72% or something like that against 10 men. And it all fell apart in the last 50 minutes because we won. Is it too simplistic simplistic to say that... um... You know, Cesc Fabregas was the for the reason for the change. Seeing him coming, well, I think it's true, and I think also I remember being at Crystal Palace and Pat, in Patrick Vieira's last season, and he got caught in possession a couple of times, and uh, he got he got caught in possession a couple of times, and he got sorry, we're looking at our watches. <laughs> got caught in possession a couple of times, and it was three in. Everyone was playing three in midfield, and and outnumbering our midfield two, and there mm. was a shift towards three midfielders and and Fabregas he wanted him to play there couldn't really with everyone else playing three he couldn't play a two especially if Sesk was one of them because he didn't have the physical power so we shifted to three and we've never gone back and we still don't have two in there who've got the physical power if you, you play don't really have one it's not the physical no, power no we don't have anyone who's got any physical power <laughs> <laughs> and on that note <laughs> So uh, let's uh, yeah, let's stop talking about it. Maybe just what's your favourite moment of the season? Can you think of one? D, let's start with you. No, let's give you the time to think about it. T, let's start with you. <laughs> <laughs> I would say my favourite moment of that season was the Vieira goal. Um, just just the fluidity that we against had. Leicester, the last game. Or, no, the, or the Tottenham game? The Tottenham one. Just the fluidity of it and the fact that it was against Tottenham. Uh, we talked about it earlier. The fact that Thierry kind of pulled up on the halfway line and went, yeah, my job's done here. The weight <laughs> on that pass. Um, when you release Bergkamp down the left wing. Yeah, and, uh, and, and the way it comes across again. And um, yeah, and, and I love the fact that, as I said earlier, I love the fact that uh, Pires is lurking on the back post and that if Vieira's telescopic leg hadn't gone out 10 foot in the direction to poke it in, then, and then Pires would have had his... Uh, customary tapping against Tottenham which would have been funny too so yeah I just always loved that one that's the one I go back to quite often yeah sweet go on most of mine are Dennis related unsurprisingly <laughs> uh, Dennis as captain running off the pitch against Birmingham uh, and just dinking it over the keeper and pointing pointing to his uh, pointing to the armband yeah pointing to the armband I oh, see so he's just watched the DVD he's got, <laughs> he's got a head start uh, but the um, was it Chelsea was it Chelsea away was it that was it that season when he put Vieira in or was it the that was season? my next one that, that was. was my moment the pass the greatest the pass in the history of football yeah at Stamford Bridge <laughs> Stamford that Bridge. just cuts uh, cuts over I'm, obviously I'm biased towards Dennis it's not obvious no okay. I have called my cat Dennis but um, <laughs> Uh, so there's that moment but the, the other one would be Thierry against Man City because we were right behind that goal the sort of in the shot rain. into the far corner yeah lashed it and yeah. I've never been that precisely behind a ball and yeah that was a wonderful, yeah. wonderful moment Amy Lawrence I think um, I, there's a few the, 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 the Tottenham Vieira goal that you just talked about um, the 
that moment when the family saw penalty hits the crossbar at Old Trafford yeah. was magic. There's things that happened that you would not want changed. And it all kicking off at Old Trafford is one for me. <laughs> Getting loads of people banned, loads of fines at Old Trafford, winding up Ferguson. That's all part and parcel of winning the league. The, 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 the next trip to the northwest after that game was a couple of weeks later against Liverpool, and Robert Pires scored an absolutely divine yeah. curling goal. Well. And um, all the players kind of gathered together in this huddle afterwards, and they they celebrated obviously very much, very close to a TV camera, and the the uh, microphone really picks up this kind of visceral, kind of primeval scream that they collectively have. Mm. where you could feel all the emotion of that moment and this sort of release of tension. I, I, I thought that was quite meaningful. Um, and uh, the other one I would probably pick out, apart from the obvious kind of Leicester and this lovely feeling, this glow, this just afterglow, just after the <laughs> final whistle of the Leicester game at Highbury, which just feels like a perfect snapshot of time. And then we got the trophy. <laughs> but it, the Inter Milan 5-1 that you mentioned as well uh, it, was a, it was a really terrible day it was pouring rain in Milan that day all day, absolutely disgusting day and uh, the Champions League hadn't been going very well and there wasn't a great deal of expectancy of anything and we've lost 3-0 at home to him haven't we? lost 3-0 at yeah. home uh, no Vieira, no Gilberto Silva um, as you said, a midfield of, of Parler and Edu, Sagan playing at the back uh, didn't, it wasn't it was a kind of Almost a Carlin Cup team in yeah, some ways. Yeah, Ray Parler captain. And uh, yeah, and 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 to win five one. And, and when you watch those goals, especially the goals at the end, it was a brilliant moment when um, uh, uh, I think it was Matarazzi tried to get a penalty for uh, for Inter by cheating, and Arsenal broke and scored. Uh, I think it was the, the Omri goal. Where it was an expl- a fantastic explosive yeah. solo goal, and Jens Lehmann standing over. <laughs> over Matarazzi, who's still riding around pretending that he's injured, like just to you know give this penalty appeal some credibility, and Jens is standing over him, going, "See, see what happens. See, we've scored now. It's, just a, it's glorious." And um, and but the goal scores, yeah, and Edu scores, and and, and uh, Perez get scores, and and the, the players were almost kind of laughing with joy. Yeah, there's a really interesting, isn't very not normal reaction to as if they just cannot believe what's happening like skipping around in a field of daisies like yeah. it's really, nice really in the happy. book the thing that comes across in the book is a lot is that they always thought they were going to win they just thought they look across they look at each other and they thought oh, we're going to win today mm. they, they'd already two years before they'd been unbeaten away from home which has never been done before I haven't been done for years since the 19th century and to match that again was amazing and then they topped it off by being unbeaten at home as well. They were marvellous. What's the book called? It's called Invincible. Get it. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Ta-da. Hey, thanks, thanks.